Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 can be found on page 457 in the Black Pew Bibles. I believe this message from Psalm 78 will at minimum have three challenges for us as we try and receive it. Challenge number one is we're prone to distraction. Challenge number two is the difficulty of the dark sayings. Challenge number three the deceitfulness of our own sins. Three, three challenges. Challenge number one, we're prone to distraction. I want to read a quote from a book that I was just reading with a group of guys in our church, and the author uh, is a pastor, and he said, many churches I've attended, they seem impatient with hearing God's word being read publicly. One suspects that people have grown accustomed to not hearing God's word read publicly except in the briefest of snippets. Appetites for hearing God's word have grown quite small. Some find the public reading of scripture boring. Others think it gets in the way of real worship, which is, in their minds, singing. Some do not understand it or have difficulty following along. Perhaps you've heard these and other reasons for neglecting public scripture reading. Do you think the Lord is impressed with any of them? End quote. Challenge number one. Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in the psalm book. 72 verses long. I thought... Maybe I should take it into bits, you know, read it slowly, explain it, stop. I even listened to one pastor preach the sermon because by practice to just fill my mind with the sermon I'm prepping, I go for runs or clean the dishes, cut my lawn and try and listen to other preachers preach the same text. No offense, I think this brother seems like a faithful preacher. But he said, Psalm 78 is way too long. I'm just going to quickly summarize it and not even read it to you. And I was like, what? Embassy. Challenge number one. I'm going to read all of Psalm 78. Because God's word explicitly commands us as Christians to devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture. Please turn your eyes with me to page 457 in the Black Pew Bible, Psalm 78, starting in verse 1 and all the way to the end of verse 72. A maskil of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. 
In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled. For he gave them what they craved, but before they had satisfied their craving while the food was still in their mouths, The anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they still did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day he redeemed them from the foe when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land. To the mountain which his right hand had won, he drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yes, yet they tested And rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. 
Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his faithful hand. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that was challenge number one. How'd you do? Challenge number two. It's a long psalm. We did it. I read the whole thing. Challenge number two is verse two. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Out of all of the 72 verses, I want to highlight this one. For those of you that know your Bibles really well, you'll know that the reason we're highlighting this verse and why it's a challenge is because it's quoted by the gospel writer Matthew in Matthew chapter 13 And it is used to explain why Jesus taught in parables. There's quite a challenge in front of us. First, why is Psalm 78, I just read the whole thing, why is it being described in verse 2 as a parable, as dark, mysterious, hidden secrets from ancient days? Dark sayings of old. Secondly, why did Jesus teach in parables? And how does this verse help explain that Jesus started teaching in parables? Because that's precisely what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 13. He fulfilled the scriptures by only speaking to them in parables. As it is written, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Something about Psalm 78 will help us understand the ministry and message of Jesus' own preaching. But it's not on the low, easy shelf to reach. It's a challenge. So, I propose this. Asaph says that his teaching, his instruction. The first verse says, my teaching, it's the word Torah. His, his instruction, give ear, O people, not give ear, O God, to a prayer. Are most of the Psalms a prayer? Give ear, O God, I'm about to pray. No, this is instructive. This is why some people think the word maskil, the very first superscription, a maskil of Asaph, is like a wisdom teaching psalm. And when I read it, even if you did get distracted, you might have realized he's covering a lot of Old Testament history. We go from Zoan to Zion. We go from the Exodus to the conquering of Joshua in the Promised Land to David up on Mount Zion, guiding his people as the king. We're covering years, generations. Psalm 78 is summarizing history. You might call it a history psalm. But that's not what Asaph calls it. He calls it instruction in the form of a parable, dark sayings from of old. I think that the way to understand Psalm 78 is that there is a pattern that if you read carefully the history of God, you'll discern that the same God yesterday is the same God today, and he's the same God tomorrow, and that his pattern of dealing with his people is very clear if you're paying attention. And so Psalm 78 
is a summary of God's dealing with his people, but through it is a lesson. There's a thread. There's a pattern. So I'm going to read through the psalm again because of challenge number one, but I will pause this time, and I want to make my case that verses one to eight tell us the key that unlocks the secret, gives us the pattern that we need to figure out for the rest of the psalm, and it would be going something like this. If God's people remember God's mighty and merciful works of salvation, then they will be faithful to obey God's word. I think he lays that out in verses 1 through 8. Let me read it to you, and then I'll repeat it again. Verses 1 to 8. A masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, we will not hide these things from our children, but we will tell them to the next generation. And what are those things, Asaph? They are the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, his wonders that he has done. He's established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed the Torah, the law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers that we should teach our children, that the next generation would know those commandments and those testimonies and those wonders and those glorious deeds. And that those children yet unborn would arise and tell them even to their children so that they would set their hope in God and they would not forget not just commandments but the very works of God, the mighty merciful works of God. And they would also keep his commandments. They would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. That's the first unit. And The summary that I'm proposing, the pattern that is presented is, if God's people remember God's mighty and merciful works of salvation, then they will be faithful to obey God's word. If they forget God's mighty and merciful works, then on the flip side, they will not be faithful to obey God's word, just like the fathers of the previous generation did not In their hearts, revere the word of God. They were a stubborn and rebellious generation. Their spirit was not faithful. Which then, if we take that introduction, that little key, let's read the rest of the psalm together. And let me show you how verses 9 to 16 is unit number 2. And notice that verses 9 and 10 say, The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. And I believe, even though this is debated, this is... 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5, when they went into battle and lost to the Philistines and lost the Ark of the Covenant. I can't go into all the reasons for why that is. Here's the simple observation all of you can make, even if you disagree with that interpretation. Look at verse 10. They, the Ephraimites, one of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of those tribes, they did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to his law. Okay, Asaph, Why? We know that they were not faithful. They did not obey God's covenant. Why? Answer. Look at the rest of that section, verses 11 to 16. Because they forgot his works. They forgot the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rocks and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Verses 11, 16 is just saying, look at the mighty works of God in the wilderness Now, 1 Samuel 4 and 5 is actually many years after these mighty works. But he's saying if they would remember God's power, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, even when God's people were sinning, they would have trusted him. They would have not gone into battle on their own strength. But they precisely went in to face this battle with their own bows. They were armed, but they lost because they had relied upon the strength of men. They forgot their mighty God. Section three continues the same theme. Look at verses 17 to 31 as our third section of the psalm. Notice right away, we're going to get the same repetitive idea that they were not faithful, 
verses 17 to 21. Yet, in spite of all of what I just recounted of God's mighty works and his abundance, generosity, they still sinned even more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God and they said, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so the water gushed out and streams overflowed, but can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Do you see what's going on in this psalm? He's referencing the mighty power of God to bring water out of a rock in the middle of the wilderness. If they would have only remembered, then they might have been faithful. But the people that actually experienced that mighty power right in front of their eyes, they kept asking for more. It's as if there's this pattern of God's people seeing God's power and having hard hearts. So look at what verse 22 says, as to why they were still sinning. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob and his anger rose against Israel. Why? Why was God angry? Why were they disobedient? Why were they asking for more? Verse 22, because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. This point of walking through the psalm, is it clear to you that if God's people would remember his mighty and merciful works of salvation, then that would be the key that unlocks their faithfulness to obey his word. Or to put it another way, for those of you that were here last week, do you remember the sins of the father? They're many. The sins of the fathers are many, but the mercy of God the father is more. As I was thinking about last week's sermon and preparing for teaching Psalm 78 again, I was reminded of this very helpful quote, and it's inspired the sermon title for today. This comes from Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs in a work on the exceeding mercy of Christ. He writes, Jesus Christ is more ready to forgive than you are to sin. As there is a continual spring of wickedness in you, so there is a greater spring of mercy in God. This is why Psalm 78 is a song about God's overflowing spring of mercy. How ready are you to sin right now? Do you know yourself well enough that it would only take an hour or two after church, being reminded of the gospel for you to be tempted in that one thing that you're really weak with to then just give over to sin right after taking the Lord's Supper. Have you ever known yourself to be that kind of person? As ready as you are to sin, God is more ready to give mercy. Hope and pray that as we work through Psalm 78, that you will see and you will savor God's mighty, merciful works. How consistent the pattern is. They sin, but he gives mercy. Notice the depth of their sin in verses 23 to 31. Notice the power of his might on display as this plague of quail comes. This is Numbers chapter 11, if you're trying to take notes. What is, what is this story that he's referring to? It's the story of Numbers 11 as they're in the wilderness. So we go from 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now we're in Numbers 11. I'm going to read verses 23 to 31, and this is God's might and power, but to judge. But notice notice the, the way that God's so generous and so able to abundantly provide and they, they doubted, they, they questioned, can he also give bread and provide meat? We're not satisfied with bread from heaven. Verse 23, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings and they ate and they were filled for he gave them what they craved and before you read the next verse you should just see 
they question, could he possibly provide? And he provides in abundance. They forgot just how generous this God was. And because of their deceitful, wicked heart, God turns the thing that he provided into the very judgment that they deserved. Verse 30. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Wait, I thought you said this sermon was about God's mercy. It is. But the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, he will by no means clear the guilty. He will punish the wicked. We don't have to pick and choose between a God who is fierce in anger and wrath toward evil and a God who is merciful toward those who commit evil. That is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And if that seems like a riddle to you already, welcome to the Christian Bible. This riddle will be solved if you're not too distracted. But let's keep reading. Verses 32 to 39 show that they are not faithful, yet probably in the greatest, juiciest, overflowing demonstration of God's abundant mercy. We see God atone for their sins. Look at verses 32 to 37. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him and they repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God of their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Do you see the pattern again? God's been really kind. God's been really gracious. God's displayed mighty works of salvation. God's displayed mighty works of judgment. And yet they still are not faithful. Verse 38. Perhaps the most potent and powerful yet in the whole psalm. Yet, but contrary to what they deserve. He, being compassionate, covered over and atoned for their iniquity. And he did not destroy them, meaning he kept a remnant. He did not wipe them out. He restrained his anger often. Is he angry? Yes. Is he angry often? Many times, he's merciful. And he did not stir up his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. The sins of the fathers are many. But the mercy of God the Father, who is willing to be patient and long-suffering, who is compassionate, who atones for iniquity, does not completely destroy his people. Why? Because his heart. It beats mercy. He's so ready to give mercy. Would you be willing to repent of your sins? To receive the mercy he's ready to give? Look at verses 40 to 55. The pattern continues. We're continuing through the history of God's people. And you're going to see that they were not faithful in verses 40 and 41. And then you're going to get the exact answer why again. Look at verse 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. No, no figure. They grieved him. He's hurt by this. He's been so kind and generous, and they are just so disrespectful. They tested a God again and again. They provoked him, the Holy One of Israel. Why? What's the reason why they would test God and rebel against him? Verse 42, because... They did not remember his power or the day that we, when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. I didn't make this up. If God's people would remember God's mighty and merciful works of salvation, they would be faithful to obey his word. 
This is what Asaph is telling us. If you would carefully read the Bible, you would have seen this pattern all by yourself. But you could take his parable, his recounting of Israel's history, and see that these people are just like you and me. They're people. And they quickly forget. And they struggle with unbelief. And even if God is as mighty and as merciful as you could possibly dream, don't presume that that would automatically make you a believer. Or that it would make you trust him. God, I need a miracle to show me. Well, God's people had miracles left and right throughout the scriptures. And yet time and time again, they forgot. Maybe a miracle might get you through another day. But if you forget the miracle the next day, you're going to be just like these people. Notice the mighty works that are on display from the story of the whole book of Exodus in in some respects, verses 43 to 55. When he performed his signs in Egypt, his marvels in the fields of Zoan, he turned the rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger and he did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength and the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them and he apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. He is mighty. He is merciful. His power is unmatched. Yet, verse 56 says, yet they were not faithful. They tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. And this description of their unfaithfulness culminates in God's rejection, as you see in verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But his mercy is more. The word yet appears several times. And for some strange reason, our English translation in front of us decides to translate it, but it would have been nice for repetition in this conjunction to have yet, yet God, rightly rejecting the tribe of Ephraim, verse 67 Look at verse 68. Yet, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. The remaining verses in the psalm go on to explain how he sets up his presence like the high heavens, like the earth, which he's founded forever, verse 69. Then he chooses not just the tribe of Judah, but he chose David to be his anointed servant king who would lead and guide to shepherd Jacob, his people, his inheritance. And so with an upright heart, he, David, by the power of the Spirit, in the wisdom of God, shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. My hope is that you have seen that there is a pattern in this parable of dark sayings of old, that the sins of the fathers are many, but the mercy of God the Father is so much more, and that he is more ready to forgive than you are to sin right now. So if you would just remember, you would remember with all of your heart and believe with all of your might that God's mighty and merciful works of salvation are for you, then this will be the path for your faithfulness to obey God's word. Challenge number one is it's a long psalm and it's easy for you to probably check out and say, wait, is Phil still preaching right now? Yes, I am. Challenge number two is that this Psalm is called a parable. It's, it's called a, a hidden secret. But really, it's not so hidden. It's something that each of you could see if you just read and reread the scriptures yourself. Asaph helps us out and gives us his own commentary poetically, teaching us that if we would remember God's might and his mercy, then we would be able and we would be enabled to obey his word.
and not be like the previous generations, the fathers who were faithless and hard-hearted and cold and callous toward God. But maybe you're wondering, okay, but why would Jesus teach in parables? Is there anything related to the pattern that we see in Psalm 78 to the ministry of Jesus Christ, especially in Matthew 13? And the answer is, of course, yes. When Jesus starts teaching in parables, just hopefully not to burst anyone's bubbles, but I have heard so many times this sort of conversation. Well, you know, Jesus is a master storyteller. He told parables because he's good at telling stories. And, you know, when somebody sits and reads a 72-verse psalm for quite a while, you get bored, and stories, they're entertaining. So that's why people love Jesus so much. Eh, false, incorrect, not true. That's not even what Matthew 13 says. Precisely because of the persecution that was building as Jesus talked in plain speech that the kingdom of God was at hand, he decided to start speaking in parabolic, code-like language. And when he did, the first one told in Matthew 13 is, hey guys, let me tell you a little story. There's a farmer and he starts sowing some seed and some of it falls on some hard soil, some of it falls on some soil that it's real rocky, and another falls on some soil that, that it, it grows, but then it gets choked up by some thorns and some, some thistles and then it dies. And then there's another seed and it falls on good soil. And they're all like, okay, okay. All right, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. And then he like drops the mic, he walks down, and he does not explain to them what it means. If Jesus is using parables to be a master illustrator storyteller, like, man, this guy tells good stories, then why did the very next section of Matthew 13, the parable is told, and the disciples come up and say, uh, we have no idea what you just did. That did not make any sense to us. If you read Matthew 13 carefully, he says, the secrets of the kingdom of God have already been given to you. And I'm speaking in this way precisely because there is a group of people all around that want me killed. And the more I talk about fulfilling the kingdom of God, the more that they are going to crucify me. So from now on, they will be hearing, but never understanding. They'll be ever seeing, but they won't really perceive. They'll see, they'll hear, they'll be like, hey, there's this guy, he's going around Galilee and he's talking about seeds. Is that a threat to the Roman Empire? No. But if you say, I'm the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and I've come to establish a new empire, Caesar's not going to like that. The Roman emperor is going to say, sick him and kill him. And precisely that's what ends up happening when the parables start getting a little bit more clear. And they start realizing, wait, read Matthew 23 and 24. These parables, they're about us. They finally get it, and when they do, they murder him. There's a pattern. Even the very first parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, there's a pattern. God's word goes out, and God's people forget. It's kind of like falling on hard stone. And then there's times where God's word goes out, and they started to receive it, and they, they believed and they repented, but they sinned just like Asaph describes here. But they flattered him with their mouths and they lied to him with their tongues. Right after, they said, oh, we remember our God. They received it and then they quickly forgot. But then there are those that hear the word of God and it falls on good soil and it lasts forever. And if you read Jesus' explanation of this, you need to realize that Jesus is not just talking about individuals, although he probably is He's talking about the pattern of Psalm 78. He's talking about how the word of God has gone out again and again through the prophets, through Moses, through David. And there are all kinds of responses throughout the people receiving and rejecting. But eventually there will be a day when the word of God comes and it changes the heart. And they won't be like the former generations of old. The law won't just be something they hear with their ears one in ear and out the other. It will be something that comes deep down into their soul and they will obey God from the heart. And Jesus explains that that last and final seed is when the word of God comes in flesh. When God speaks in these last days according to his son and he 
proclaims all the fullness of the law and the prophets have their final yes and amen and their fulfillment and completion in Jesus. And if you would receive Jesus like that good soil, the ultimate quintessential word of God and the one who has displayed for us not just his words and commandments, but his mighty acts of power, his mercy to atone for sin. Who is the God in flesh that makes Psalm 78, 38 true? Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Or who's the one that solves the riddle of Exodus 34? There is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he will by no means clear the guilty. I'll just sweep it under the rug. No, he will not do that. He will punish sin. How's that riddle solved? And the answer the Bible gives us is that Jesus becomes not just the one who dies in our place to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but he becomes the one who passes the test when he is tested as a human, as an innocent sufferer, as a perfect sacrificial lamb. In fact, let me point out part of the hidden, not so obvious, but when it's pointed out to you, if you meditate as I've had the privilege to do, you might see another pattern, not just the pattern that if we would remember, then we might obey. If we remember God's mighty works, then we would obey. Notice this pattern. First, Psalm 78, verse 18. They tested God in their heart. They tested God in their heart. Okay. How? Answer. By demanding the food they craved. Then Jesus was led up to the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, because he did not forget the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Test number one, the first time the word test is used in our psalm. Test number one. Food, cravings. Jesus was tested in the wilderness, craving food. I mean, he had eight for 40 days. But he was satisfied with the word of God alone. Test number two, Psalm 78, 41 to 42. Look at verses 41 to 42. They tested God again and again. And they provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power on the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. If the first test was a test of struggling to believe that God would provide, Jesus passed the test and Israel failed. I don't think he'll provide. So they grumbled and complained. Test number two. They tested God again and again, Psalm 78, 41 and 42 says, because they did not remember his power to protect them from the foe. First test, God is provider. Second test, God is protector. Interestingly, Jesus was taken by the devil to the holy city and set on the pinnacle of the temple. And they said to him, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. First, will God provide for Jesus? By the word of God alone. Will God protect Jesus? Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. Third and final test. Look at Psalm 78 verses 56 and following. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. They tested and rebelled God and did not keep his testimonies because they had chosen high places of idol worship. A test of allegiance 
and who is worthy of supreme worship. Does that sound familiar to anybody that's read the story of Jesus before? Let me refresh your memory. Again, the devil took him to a very high place, a high mountain. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory, and he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. The test of allegiance, the test of who's worthy of worship. And how does our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, respond? Well, the same way he responded the first two times, the word of God. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I hope you'll see that there's a pattern, a parable. If you read your Bible carefully, you'll see time and time again various dark sayings of old, where God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that God has become Jesus Christ. And he too will be tested like the nation of Israel and like you and me. But unlike you and me, we're prone to forget. We're quick to sin. There's a spring of wickedness in us that we should all admit. But praise be to God. The mercy of God the Father is more to send forth his Son. And this Son will demonstrate the mercy of God in a face. A face that looks in sinners in their face and says, I love you. I will forgive you. You don't even know what you're doing right now. You don't understand. He will demonstrate the full obedience of God's law and every time there's a test, he passed it so that he would become that innocent, perfect, suffering lamb on the cross that died for the sins of all of us who would repent of our sin and trust in Jesus. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He will destroy. But will he destroy you or me? Do you see why there's a challenge of distraction? This is a long psalm. There's a challenge of trying to figure out what is this dark saying as of old? But do you see that the greatest challenge of all is the deceitfulness of our own sin? And that's why Nate came up earlier in the service and read for us Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like those in the wilderness. Today. Are you alive today? Hello, wake up. I know it's a long sermon, it's a long psalm. Hello, today. Do you hear the call of the God of the universe speaking through the written word that the pattern of God's might and mercy is on display by him becoming a man, lying in a manger first, growing in wisdom and stature, passing all the tests, dying on the cross. And the greatest might and mercy that's ever been displayed is when he hung on that cross. And instead of calling thousands of angels, he just said, it's finished. And bowed his head and breathed his last. The solution to the deceitfulness of our sin is the centrality of God's word and that word being displayed for us in the person of Christ. So as we conclude this message, I hope that it's clear to you as simple takeaways. Practically, we need to be a church that reads God's word because we quickly forget. We're prone to deceit. Hebrews chapter 3 says, do it every day. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, exhort one another daily as long as you have breath in your lungs. Call up a church member and exhort them. Text them. Email them. Sign up to our new newsletter and be encouraged and exhorted with scripture as much as possible. The world is not neutral. It is distracting from the mercy and might of God. Parents, do you teach your children as our psalm at the beginning encouraged us? Do you not just teach them, but do you teach them that you too have sinned, that you confess your sins and share your faults and failures with your children so that they will not pass on your failures? I think one of the big, big takeaways of Asaph's summary is that you can read the Bible and have moral lessons that aren't always just about Jesus. Some of those lessons, though, more often than not, are how bad of examples humans are. The hero of the story is Jesus at the end because David failed, Moses failed. 
However we read the Old Testament, we should see that these stories are not meant only to point us to Jesus. They are meant for our instruction, but do not miss the point. A lot of that instruction is just how miserably we've blown it. And if that point has saturated our own hearts as parents, as this passage teaches us to instruct our children, I think it'd be really helpful at the appropriate time, the appropriate age, to be honest with them about some of your biggest regrets and tell them you're sorry for the way that you spoke so aggressively and loudly and inappropriately for something so small and trivial. I think it would be a great encouragement for all of us if we would teach our children not just that God has saved them, but that God has saved you, that you're a sinner. So let's read God's words together. Let's sometimes have longer sermons. Let's sometimes read big chunks of Scripture. Let's devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture because we're prone to forget. And if we would remember God's might and his mercy, we'd be able to not have our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We'd be drawn to repentance. And we would be able to not be like the fathers who have stiff necks and hard hearts. Let's do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to come now in Jesus' name and pray for the Spirit of God to come teach us the, the importance of your word. Lord, some of us in this room need to be rightly rebuked for how much consumption of other forms of content and media that has been consumed over the last weeks and months. Even if it's seemingly good and not wicked, it's not the purity of your word that sustains life. We live not by bread alone, but by every word. So we want to pray that your spirit would come over us like it did after the exile. And there was great revival when Ezra stood up and just read for the entire day the law of God. Father, would your spirit do that pattern again? Meet this church, this group of people with a revived, refreshed vigor and commitment to devote ourselves to the Holy Scriptures. We would have the posture that Isaiah talks about and tremble at your word in fear and in awe by your great wonders of, of, of might and, and mercy and majesty. So we want to pray that this would be the kind of response that would be fitting for those of us that are in this room that are Christians. But we also want to pray for any of us in this room that are not Christians and we've not admitted that we do have a heart that is regularly prone toward evil, small acts of evil or mighty acts of evil, regardless of their consequence in our lives or the world, we have sinned against you and you only, Lord. And so we want to pray that anyone in this room that doesn't have a personal, committed relationship with God, they're not baptized members of a church, that they would understand how important it is to admit their sin and confess their need for a Savior. Lord, would you draw some of them in this room through this message to repentance and faith now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.